It's been 50 years since the War of the Wilds, and still nothing grows on the Kindlelands. The exact day the flora of the world stood up and ravaged the cities of the Greynor Peninsula is lost to the ages. After the Great Fire tore its way from west to east, turning the land barren and fallow, the otherworldly patrons, the guides, and the great cities of the Kindlelands worked together in their own way to bring a kind of peace to a war-torn nation. It is a gentle, delicate balance. And, and something, something or someone, someone threatens, threatens it. it. This is the story of the Aegis Three, soldiers, smugglers, and sons, who became guardians of the warlock patrons of magic, and found themselves entwined in the buried and sordid history of their country, their companions, and themselves. They are... Mordecai Sabolwark, the Shifter Barbarian. Mordecai comes from a large family of shifters from the capital city of Bulwark. He is aimless after trying his hand at the military life of his father, and is traveling to the city of Despera to try his hand at the life of the druid, like his mother. Zephyr Johnson, the dragonborn warlock. After his family was captured and killed by the military for dabbling in taboo magics, a young Zephyr fumbled into the shrine and service of one of the patrons, the Deep. From there he was captured by the military and raised to be a weapon. His mandatory service now over, he travels the Kindleland, smuggling like talented mages from under the thumb of the government. Captain Jackson Silver, the human fighter. Jackson hails from Plainswatch and from a long line of decorated soldiers. Jackson served on Greynor's Wall with pride and distinction at a young age. He returned home after his tour to visit his ailing father once more before he died, then set off from there into the world, seeking his next adventure. These three would-be adventurers meet in the city of Despera by way of a job offer from Mr. Ender, proprietor of one of the local taverns, the Salad Bowl. Here, they set off on their first job together to investigate the recent silence from the manor of the necromancer, Robbie Graves. They make fast friends of one another, an effective team. There is no shortage of work in the crossroads city of Despera, and the trio are quickly provided more jobs, assisting Mr. Ender's brother in stopping a bank heist, being hired by the Mages Guild to survey a local forest, and being asked to investigate a threat against the Wanderer, Despera's local warlock patron, by none other than Mordecai's mother, Arc Druid Leia Sabolwerk. Stationed throughout the crowd, Jackson, Zephyr, and Mordecai eventually found the would-be assailants in the middle of their plot. The trio is approached by an elven man named Cameron, a beggar who Jackson aided a few days prior. Cameron led them down a seemingly endless road that breaks into a massive crossroads, a landscape of nothing but twisting, winding paths. Cameron reveals himself to be the Wanderer in disguise. Their current location, the Nexus, is the Wanderer's domain. The assailants give chase into the Nexus and are fended off by Jackson, Zephyr, and Mordecai. The Wanderer is safe, but the threat against him, and all the patrons, has been made real. Archdruid Leia requests the Wanderer and the other patrons undergo the Rite of Consolidation, which will unbind them from their respective domains and cities and relocate them to the city of Bulwark for protection. The Wanderer, keen to keep a modicum of freedom, counters Leia's offer with the Rite of Aegis. Instead of being bound to bulwark, the patrons would be bound to individuals, here and now. Jackson, Zephyr, and Mordecai agree to perform the Rite of Ages. They must choose who takes the Wanderer, and by extension, the other fiendish patron, the General. 
Zephyr, already spoken for as a warlock of the deep, will collect her and the other outsider, the sleeping seer. Mordecai agrees to take the fiends, leaving Jackson with the fey patrons, the green lady Gaia of his hometown, and the forebearer. Mordecai clasps hands with the wanderer, and in a flash of light and a burst of heat, the wanderer vanishes, and a crisscrossing tattoo of roads and paths appears across Mordecai's arm. The Rite of Aegis begins. The Aegis Three stock up for a trip across the Kindalands, visiting all the major cities to collect the patrons for the Rite. Their mission is largely secretive, and thus, they need a cover. They meet the final flight, a small band of traveling actors and performers. Their director, a human man named Jeremiah, supposedly is getting something out of this in return, but is scant on the details. The final flight and the Aegis Three set off for Lorada, where the Deep is located. The coastside city is where Saphir largely grew up before being pressed into military service. Already being a warlock of the Deep, it was a simple process of finding the shrine, completing a ritual founded in the Deep's methodical repetition, and Saphir coming face to face with his patron and bringing her into the Rite of Ages. They emerge from the Deep's watery realm, Saphir now bearing the tattoo of dark ribbons across his arm. The Aegis Three continue with the final flight to the northern city of Norwalk, home of the famed Geitworth Academy. This is where they would acquire the next outsider patron, the Sleeping Seer. They are introduced to one of the professors of the Academy who would help them, Adelaide Charmaine, more affectionately known as Addie. Jackson and Addie make quick friends of one another on their way up to the Academy proper to meet the headmaster and begin the ritual. They arrive in the headmaster's office to find her dead, however. Her assailants, several large, imposing Goliaths, are still in the room as they enter. A battle ensues. Goliaths are practically never seen this side of Greynor's wall, as are changelings, who the assailants are revealed to be as they are struck down. Most of the attackers are killed, save for one, who escapes into the city below, despite the party giving chase. Sphere does, however, find the armor the changeling ditched in the streets. On the armor is a symbol a symbol they found earlier while surveying the forests near Despera. After the fight settles, the Aegis Three and Addy are faced with moving forward with the ritual themselves. The graduating warlock class from the academy has their ceremony expedited to facilitate the Rite of Ages. They descend below the academy to find the form of the Sleeping Seer, a massive beholder, eyes shut in restless sleep. With Addy guiding them, the Aegis Three follow the ceremonial procedures and enter the realm of the Seer. With one defining caveat, the seer will try to tempt you to wake it up. Under no circumstances do you wake up the seer. The Aegis Three fall into a deep sleep to enter the realm, and visions wash over them. Visions of potential futures, good and bad, fear, glory, and honor play out before their unbidden eyes. After the visions, they arrive in the seer's realm. The massive beholder resting atop a mountain of pillows has shrunken down to a more manageable size. They introduce themselves as Carrie, who offers their temptations, if only someone wakes them up. After brief deliberation, the Aegis Three decide not to wake up the sleeping seer, and the rite is completed. Upon waking up, Zephyr's other arm bears the tattoos of several blinking eyes. The Aegis Three say their goodbyes to Addie, but not before Jackson hands her one of the two paired scrolls he'd found earlier in the group's travels. They could now stay in touch, no matter how far they travel apart. Jackson urges the group forward to Plainswatch by ship, his vision suggesting his hometown may be in distress. Lo and behold, Jackson's vision has come true. Plainswatch is covered in flora and vines, 
with a gigantic tree at the city center. Moving quickly, they soon discover that the tree is connected to the Green Lady. Instead of attacking the tree with flaming ballista bolts, the Aegis Three elect to venture inward, into the swarms of greenery that have consumed the city. The Aegis Three face down darklings, giant beasts, wild flora, and discover the strange symbol, again, on the dead bodies of a group of changelings. The further they press into the expanse of vines, the more dangerous their journey becomes. They are ambushed by wild animals and a very small dragon. They defeat the creatures and subdue the fairy dragon. Then Zephyr is able to communicate with it telepathically. It offers to help them, but only if they agree to help the Green Lady. Their new fairy dragon friend, dubbed Gary, leads them closer to the city center and relative safety. The party hunkers down inside a building filled with old military uniforms from the old guard of Plainswatch. They also find a memorial for one Joseph Silver, first scythe of Plainswatch, a hero, and Jackson's ancestor. Also resting on the memorial, the scythe he wielded. Jackson picks up the scythe, resolving to carry his family's legacy in defending his home. Meanwhile, Zephyr finds the way forward through an adjoining library. While searching the library, Zephyr finds a book resting on a table, entitled Patronic Natures by Rogar Shenastilia, Zephyr's father. With little time to rest, he snatches the book away for a later time. The Aegis Three and Gary make the final stretch to the tree at the city center. A sea of stone statues catch their eye, and as they examine them, the group finds the statues to be petrified people, including Jackson's cousin. Warily moving forward, the Aegis Three launch an attack against a Medusa spotted near the base of the tree. They dispatch her and remain unpetrified, but her victims remain locked in stone. They find an active ritual site opening a portal to Gaia's realm of the Feywilds. Something is off about it, however. It is unstable, corrupting. Using their own ritual materials, they write the portal and enter Gaia's realm. They are met by the kind, matronly presence of the lady herself. She is distraught. Her children are scattered and confused. They cause harm to the city. Jackson asks if there's something he can do to help. Anything. She says she can repair the damage done by the Medusa and return the creatures and plants to her realm, but she would need help. Jackson's help. For his assistance, there would be a price. Some of him will be changed. Gaia would take some of him and replace it with Fay, feeling the scythe at his side. Jackson agrees. Power fills him as he begins the rite, and Gaia takes him in her arms. Light and wind surrounds them as Gaia recalls her children back to the Feywild. The light spreads out across the city, and when it fades, Mordecai and Zephyr turn to see Jackson alone. He turns, and they see him, a bit taller, a bit leaner, and with two pointed ears. Jackson Silver Human has become Jackson Silver Elf, with a swirling tattoo of vines across his arm. The age three takes some time to recuperate. Jackson visits family, and adjusts to life, now as an elf. Zephyr, practicing with the flight, takes to the stage for the first time, and also learns that one of the mages he had smuggled out of Despera has gone missing. Mordecai works off some stress and a little bit of street fighting. Afterwards, they make a plan. Thinking back to their visions from Carrie, they conclude the forest Mordecai saw in his vision was the same forest they explored north of Despera. They would need to return to Despera on the way south to Concetre to pick up the next patron, so why not explore the forest along the way? A plan in place, they hit the road with the final flight toward Despera, stopping one evening at the famed Inn Out There. 
confidence soaring from their recent victories, the Aegis Three decided to reward themselves and indulge in some hallucinogenic beetles they found weeks back. Tucked away in one of the rooms, they dive in. Their trip takes them far into the future of Bulwark. Mild-mannered radio jazz DJs by day and secret masked crime fighters by night. They take a job from a man looking for his missing sister, and after some cursory investigation, discover she was a mage on the run. They track her to a location known as Amber Eye Associates, and explore the building, discovering its purpose as a smuggling point. Before they can fully explore, however, Carrie shakes them from their hallucinations suddenly. The inn is under attack. They look outside to find the inn surrounded by goliaths, shifters, and changelings. A massive bonfire burns not far from the inn, with a large scarecrow making up the center. This, they recall, is the symbol of Yarrow, Lord of Reaping, one of the lords of the forest from the wildlands beyond Greynor's Wall. Surrounded and outnumbered, the Aegis Three and the final flight make a hasty getaway, fighting through a large number of attackers to make it to the wagon and escape into the night. Making it back to Despera with more questions than answers, they revisit familiar faces at the Mages Guild, as well as meeting a new one. They meet Ira, a half-orc ranger and her panther companion, Karma, hired to help guide and assist the Aegis Three as they return to the forest. They think back to their first expedition there, and recall the large stone building that spanned the river, the one Mordecai most likely saw in his vision. Taking the day to prepare, they set off with Yira and Karma into the forest once again. Once they arrive back at the stone building, they track down the stairs they missed the first time in their quick escape. The group descends, finding a hideaway of sorts. A quick perusal of the area determines this as a small base of operations for agents from beyond the wall. Correspondence identifies the Aegis Three, and orders direct others of their ilk to where they could be found. They also find a pristine stone room, a shrine, that makes the patrons inside of them feel unsettled and uncomfortable. The patrons identify old magic of some kind, something vaguely familiar to them. Gold and silver statues, murals depicting animal figures, and other symbols with alcoves containing some items. Zephyr finds a gold tooth cap that Carrie feels like they should know what this is, but can't seem to recall it. It grants Zephyr the ability to choose the element of his dragon breath. Mordecai finds a small potion that the Wanderer immediately responds to. He identifies great power within it power to save a life, win a fight, fix something thought unfixable. Once. As they clear out the contents of the shrine, they are attacked by a wild and feral figure. A brutal fight ends with the figure pinned and restrained by the Aegis Three and Yira. The man speaks in a language unknown to the others, but Zephyr's telepathy allows them to communicate. They learn the man serves the lords of the forest and a man named Titus, speaking crazed about the hunt, freeing nature, the path being corrupted. He identifies the symbol they've found as a mark for hunters and hunting grounds. Their goals for wanting to destroy the patrons is because they stand in their way. Suddenly the man breaks free from his bonds instilled with new vigor. They strike him down again and he is reduced to nothing but cinders by Zephyr's magic. Spurred on by the intensity, Jackson re-enters the shrine and tears his scythe through the statues and strikes deep cuts into the figures in the mural. They are left with more questions than answers as the party returns to Despera to reconvene with the final flight. They rest and recover for the day. Mordecai reconnects with the Wanderer and his old druid teacher. Zephyr plies his newfound bardic trade. Jackson, 
addled by not sleeping since becoming an elf and having hours of lonely wakefulness added to his life, seeks a church and speaks with a fellow elf about perhaps becoming a more dedicated servant to the gods. Their business in order, they set off for Concentre with the final flight. The path to the mountain city is difficult and treacherous, made more difficult by the pouring rain. They eventually arrive soaked and exhausted and make directly for the colonel who governs Concentre. On the way to the colonel's office, the Aegis Three sees a war memorial. A memorial to those lost at the Battle of C-34, a devastating attack from the Wildlands that nearly made a break in Greynor's Wall. It was the largest attack against the Wall since its construction. The Aegis Three meet up with Colonel K. Coppersot, a hard-looking woman who would help them with the ritual for the rite. She is dismayed, however, as she informs them that the general has left his post. He's gone AWOL with Mordecai's father. Salix Sabolwerk serves the Kindlelands as a scout and a spy. Salix had some sort of information the colonel relayed that led him to believe that an attack was imminent. The general, seeking to take the fights to the enemy on his home turf, joined Salix. According to the colonel, they left Concentre down the mountain for the Lumberton of Ground, a city that grows controlled levels of trees for materials. Mordecai takes immediately to leave, but is persuaded by Zephyr to stay and take a much-needed rest for the night. He does so, leaving Zephyr at the memorial to C-34. Jackson arrives shortly after. They quickly discover that they were both there that day. Zephyr was atop the wall with his fellow warlocks. They were serving their purpose as magical artillery, bombarding the hordes of enemies from above. A charge incoming, Zephyr lost in the haze of battle saw an opportunity. A section of wall barely hanging on, he severed the piece. It fell, crushing dozens of enemies in the rubble. But nearly twenty allied soldiers fell to their deaths from the spot that Zephyr destroyed. Jackson was on the ground, fighting. He saw his captain get cut down and his men start to panic. Jackson picked up the captain's insignia and began to shout orders. He made a call rallied who he could. He sounded the retreat back behind the wall. In the aftermath, Jackson was retroactively promoted to the rank of captain so that no questions were asked about the chain of command. Their own leaders wouldn't fall under the scrutiny, because that was what was important. Giving each other some comfort as they recall a terrible day, the two resolved to leave this land after it's all over. The Aegis Three descend the mountain path to ground, battling harpies along the way. Among the first thing they see when they arrive is a merchant's wagon, painted on the side, Mr. Willow's Wonderful Whatsits. Mordecai points the wagon out and shares that Willow was his father's codename for when he ranged beyond the wall, using his ancestry to blend in and gather information. Mordecai also served in this capacity, as he shares the codename of Ash. They find the older shifter in a nearby tavern, peddling wares and keeping up appearances. They meet back at his wagon to find the general has joined Salix in a similar fashion to the Rite of Aegis. The general explains that he sensed the presence of Mavo, Lord of the Pack, the same lord of the forest that urged the attack on C-34. Mavo's agents were detected in the area, and the general was eager to strike out against an old foe. The Aegis Three and Salix investigate ground. They learn that several people have gone missing, and by following those leads, they find themselves on a small island in the middle of a lake, with a hidden passageway descending below the earth. 
Bracing themselves, they go down, traveling the twisting pathways of ruins long forgotten. Their only guide was rhythmic chanting, calling them deeper into the earth. At the terminus of their path, Salix ranges ahead while the Aegis Three sneak forward to get a view of the battlefield. A man in robes chants, channeling a massive sphere of water. Several other figures dot the area and the natural catwalks above, weapons at the ready. At the back of the chamber, caged, is a giant bear, psychic energy rippling around it. They get the drop on their enemy. Mordecai engages the archers on the catwalk. Zephyr makes for the other end of the chamber and the bear. Jackson heads down to confront the priest. The battle rages and bodies fall. Zephyr convinces the telepathic bear they mean it no harm, and he frees it. It retreats into the caves. Mordecai joins the fight below. Jackson fights surrounded. The priest wavers, seeking an exit. Salix appears from the shadows and strikes out at the priest, who, aghast, wonders what his long-dead brother is doing here, before Salix buries a pair of daggers into his brother's neck, apologizing as the body hits the floor. Mordecai flies into a rage and strikes down the last remaining soldiers. Jackson, with his new pursuits and divinity, drops his weapons and throws himself over the priest's body, pouring whatever magic he has into the dying man. Faintly, the priest's breath returns. Jackson and Zephyr secure the priest and search the area for the missing townspeople from ground, finding them safe. They learn about the priest's plot. The sphere of water would have formed into a massive geyser and propelled itself up the mountain, destroying everything in its path, including Concetre at the top. Meanwhile, Salix shares his history with his son. Their family is originally from beyond Greynor's Wall. Salix was a young acolyte in Mavo's service, but wasn't entirely cut out for the life. His brother, Sinus, was more devout. They came to the side as the atmosphere grew more oppressive, not the place to raise a family. Mordecai grapples with a small schism in his identity, trying to process his family being from a place he has only ever been told are his enemies. He shares his side of what happened during C-34 with Jackson and Zephyr. Salix and Mordecai were beyond the wall serving as scouts when they caught word the attack that resulted in C-34 was coming. Mordecai wanted to run back to the wall and give warning, but his father commanded him to stand down. The forces of Mavo were allowed to approach unchecked, and Mordecai has never fully forgiven his father for that order, or himself for following it. Jackson, Zephyr, and Mordecai resolve to stay true to each other as their journey begins to approach its end point. They will have the power to make, or at least influence, certain decisions. And every day and every question answered colors those decisions more and more. With Sinus revitalized, the telepathic bear gone from the area, and Mordecai and Salix at some kind of agreement, they return topside with the missing townspeople and make the trek back to Concetre. Salix returns the general to his domain, and the Aegis Three begin the ritual, revisiting the events of C-34. They live that dreadful day once again, Jackson holding the line, wearing the insignia of his dead captain, Zephyr shattering a piece of the wall that stopped an enemy charge, but at such a cost, and Mordecai, scouting with his father and brothers beyond the wall, swarmed by beasts, Salix frozen in place as Mavo grabbed the small piece of him that Salix still harbored. Mordecai and his brother Benjen took cover in a cave, while their brother Kerut got their father to safety at the cost of his own life.
They awake from their visions in the general's domain, freezing cold with broken weapons and banners littering the ground. The general speaks on duty, and living with the decisions made on the field of battle. He and Mordecai complete the rite, and a rising tattoo of scimitars appear up his arm. The Ages Three spend their next day in Concentric, wrapping up loose ends. Zephyr and Mordecai both make discreet trips to a secret prison for mages, the Hedron. Zephyr meets with Yandi, the gnomish druid he helped smuggle out of Despera, who apparently was caught. She tells him to get to Bulwark and inform one of the head runners, someone named Greenstone, of her fate. Meanwhile, Mordecai meets with his uncle and tries to persuade him to turn coat and lend his talents and information to the crown. He is unsuccessful, however. The overall victory bittersweet in his mind. Jackson, after receiving a missive from Addie, prepares for the last leg of their journey. The next and last stop on their journey is Bulwark to collect the forebearer. The Ages Three have often pondered what comes next after they've acquired all the patrons. Plans have ranged to hunkering down, to becoming a strike force, to scattering across the Kindlelands. On the road, Mordecai spends much time in animal form, ranging ahead. Jackson continues studying the holy books of the guides. Zephyr reads his father's tome and learns of a way warlocks of the deep were able to create their own familiars. On the road to Bulwark, Jeremiah of the Final Flight guides them off the road one night to a location he says they can rest safely. He leads them to the ruins of a once lordly manor called Everburn Hall. There's been tension building between the Final Flight and Jackson ever since the inn out there, and Jackson is suspicious about where Jeremiah has led them. Taking charge, Jeremiah sends Mordecai, Zephyr, and the other members of the Final Flight out to check on the integrity of the walls and scan the perimeter. He asks Jackson to accompany him inside the hall. He shares with Jackson the history of this place, how this was once his family's home where performers and musicians and artists of all kinds would travel to. It was burned to the ground during the Great Fire that ended the War of the Wilds. Jeremiah is the last of his line. His deal with King Graynor in assisting the group on the Rite of Ages would see his family's ancestral home restored, and Jeremiah its lord. Traveling inside, Jeremiah lights a candle, and a wave of energy radiates from the flame, creating a spectral overlay of their surroundings. Instinct kicking in, Jackson attacks Jeremiah as spirits and ghosts of the past appear. The rest of the group sees the spirits return as well, and they rush inside after Jackson and Jeremiah. The situation is calmed and Jeremiah's wounds are healed as Jackson quietly reels to himself. Focusing on the new situation, the Ages Three explore Everburn Hall. They unravel the mystery through reenacting plays and assisting spirits trapped in time. Eventually, they learn of a presence beneath the hall. They are told from a spirit that these figures repeat the night of the fire every day. Seeing the spectral flames approaching from the distance, the Ages Three and Jeremiah make haste below Everburn Hall to confront what dwells below. They encounter three hag-like women, chanting and channeling. Jeremiah and Zephyr stick to an upper landing, firing magic and crossbow bolts from above, while Jackson and Mordecai take the fight to them, battling through visions of frightful things the hags bring to life. As the hags fall, the portal they were channeling weakens and flashes. Some connection between this place, these hags, and Gaia manifests as Jackson attacks the altars the hags were chanting around. In the aftermath of the fight, the spirits and ghosts are pulled back through the portal, and the cycle comes to an end. Gaia weeps and mourns for this place, some connection she cannot seem to recall, and she and Jackson grow closer than ever before. 
A short trip from Everburn Hall to Bulwark sees their journey almost through. They say their farewells to the final flight and make for the Bulwark residence. Mordecai reconnects with his brothers and sisters, and they also meet one Bailet Haram, more affectionately known as Master B, a black dragonborn of the Sleeping Seer. Bailet is not only Addie's mentor, but one of the king's council, much like Mordecai's mother, Leia. Leia herself is having a small celebration for Mordecai's return. It has been long since so much of their family has been in one place. A handful of other court dignitaries and important people are invited as well. It's a chance for the Ages Three to relax before not only acquiring the Forebearer, but dining with King Greynor himself. Mordecai confronts his mother about his heritage and how she has kept it a secret. Much of the family already knows, except for the two youngest. Mordecai expresses his concerns for what comes next and all of the secrets and mysteries they have yet to uncover. He shares his concerns about trusting the crown and where his allegiances lie. Leia slides a simple brass bracelet over her wrist and tells Mordecai to listen closely. She can't speak freely for long. She tells him that Zephyr knows of a way out if something goes wrong. Greenstone. She can get the group to relative safety, if need be, but she hopes they never have to use it. Mordecai, processing, just nods, and quietly prepares for dinner. The dinner with King Greynor is largely civil, but tense. The first point of contention arises when the king says that Jackson will collect the forebearer alone. Zephyr and Mordecai immediately interject, arguing that they have acquired all of the other patrons together, and they will do so with this one. King Greynor seems to yield at that. Throughout dinner, there were a couple of strange things noticed. Zephyr resisted some sort of magical effect aimed at influencing his opinion. Mordecai felt the Wanderer tense in response to Jackson speaking on the patrons not enjoying being kept in the dark. Though they largely seemed to have accomplished what they wanted, they leave unsettled. Taking time to process, the Ages Three separate for some brief errands before the party at the Bulwark residence. Jackson takes some quiet time to write Addie and reflect on the dinner. Zephyr acquires some materials and, following instructions from his father's book, goes about the process of creating a homunculus, which he names Rogar after his father. Mordecai delivers a note to a drop point Zephyr told him about to get in touch with Greenstone. On the way back, he notices the building near the drop point reads, Amber Eye Associates, the same location from their shared hallucination. The party goes off without a hitch. Mordecai thrives amongst his family. Food, drink, company, and song make for a warm and relaxing evening after the tension of the day. Mordecai ends the night passed out in his mother's garden near the memorial for his brother Kerut. The next day, Jackson awakes before the dawn, preparing himself to take on the forebearer. He makes a stop at the local mage's guild where Addie has sent him a gift. A locket, with a picture of herself inside and the promise that it would help keep him safe. Mordecai awakens, cleans himself up, and tries to shake off his hangover as he gets ready for the day. Zephyr finally has time to go over some of the books he requested about the patrons. One of them is a condensed record of the history of previous rites of ages. About 40 years ago was the last rite, and Zephyr reads that the previous ages of the outsiders was his father. The ages three follow Bailet Haram to the ritual site. 
Saphir shares what he has learned with his fellows. On edge, thinking this can't be coincidence, remembering how the patrons have gaps in their memories, they press on. They are met with almost immediate resistance at the ritual site. Two guards bar the way and say only Jackson may enter. Saphir and Mordecai declare the king gave his word they could enter. Eventually, the guards waver, but it is a tense start to an already tense situation. Inside, Master B reads through the sparse information on the ritual. A large brass cup with a chair sits inside at the room's center, with another piece above that would lower to make a complete dome. Master B finds the mechanism, and the Aegis Three make their plan. Jackson will enter alone, while Mordecai and Saphir guard the room. Master B informs Jackson of what he will need to do, and that it will need to be done quickly and quietly. Jackson sheds his armor, but Mordecai uses some druidic magic to make his skin as hard as bark, and Zephyr inspires him with a song. Jackson sits in the chair at the center of the room, and Master B throws the switch. The dome completes, and the entire contraption begins to descend. Mordecai and Zephyr take up positions to guard the room, watching the door. Jackson, descending catches hint of some sort of gas filling the sphere, but the voice of Carrie enters his mind, saying that Saphir sent a little piece of them along and is fighting off whatever drug is trying to enter Jackson's system. The dome eventually opens and Jackson's met with an industrial setting, deep in the heart of the mountain. Lightning crackles through the room and the steelwork giving off faint glimmers of light. He reaches the end of the chamber quietly and finds the black orb Master B mentioned in the book. Beyond the orb is a door, slightly ajar. Jackson hears the faintest of breathing, but the ritual book said to go to the orb and not one step further. Jackson follows the ritual's instructions to the letter, placing his hands on the orb. Lightning courses through him as the color drains from the orb and up into his arm, forming the tattoo. The rite seemingly complete, Jackson moves for the exit, but is met by the guardian of this realm, an earthen construct resembling man and dragon. Jackson effortlessly cuts it down and makes for the dome, ascending back to where he came. At the top, Jackson exits, and the Aegis Three and Master B debrief. Something still doesn't feel right. Jackson did not actually see the forebearer. He gained no new strength or ability. The space in his mind where the forebearer should be now feels hollow, and Gaia confirms this. Fire lights in Master B, Tired of secrets, he declares that they could go back down. They could all go back down. Through that door and find answers. Screwing their courage to the sticking place, they all agree. They pile in the dome and descend. Carefully, they make their way for the door at the end of the chamber. Slowly, they enter to behold a room filled with chains. Gigantic chains from the ceiling that slowly get smaller and smaller until they all condense around a single figure. A man. Hair of brown and red, beard overgrown and unkempt with faint ridges of red scales across his face and body. Perhaps this is the true forebearer. They try to wake him up but to no avail until Jackson lays the newly tattooed hand upon him. Lightning shocks the man awake, who speaks in a tongue alien to the ages as he tries to take in his surroundings. He identifies himself as Amarea Dijani and claims to be a god. Or, at least, that's what his people called him. He asks where he is. He asks what happened to his people. 
At the mention of the name Graynor, he angers. They are responsible for this. They learn he has been imprisoned for centuries. From a time before the Graynor line, before the wall, before everything. Answers leaving them reeling. The Aegis agree they need to free this man. The secrets and lies boiling over, Jackson, Saphir, and Mordecai aim to free a god and upturn the table. Mordecai grabs the potion he found back in the shrine in the forest, something the wanderer told him was for dire emergencies, and pours it into the mouth of Amarea Dejani. Amarea's form begins to shift into that of a massive dragon. He rakes his claws across the chains that bind him as his form grows larger and larger, They climb on, and Amarea asks about the terrain. Up or through? Up, Jackson says. They ascend through the bottom of the mountain that Bulwark is built upon, through the upper ring of the city, and through King Greynor's palace that sits at the very top. Nothing but destruction is left in their wake as they fly off into the wastelands. Not long after they land, the weight of their decision begins to settle on them, They try to focus on the immediate. What comes next? A place to stay. Shelter of some kind. Greenstone. Their way out. Jackson, Zephyr, Mordecai, Master B, and Amarea Dejani make the trek back to Bulwark. The city is in disarray. Rubble from the mountaintop can be found miles from the city. Buildings are collapsed and people are wounded in the streets. Quickly and quietly, they make their way for the upper ring. Mordecai, increasingly anxious about his family. His mother is there to greet them all. They don't have much time, but Mordecai hastily explains what he can to Leia. She tells him that his brother Mako, a palace guard, cannot be found. Mordecai tries to convince his family to leave, not wanting any of this to fall back on them. She says they have to stay. Mordecai turns to Jackson and Zephyr and tells her that he has to go. He has to hide, for now. They say their goodbyes, and Mordecai promises to come back soon. They hurry to the docks, to Amber Eye Associates, where they will greet Greenstone. Mordecai is surprised yet again to see his older sister, Kella, who reveals herself to be Greenstone, telling Mordecai that this was their surname before they came to this side of the wall. Zephyr and Kella talk business, needing a place to hide themselves and Amarea Dejani. She agrees and takes them on a single minecart track. The track lasts for nearly two hours before emptying out into a city underground, a city built by all of the mages and runaways Zephyr and his ilk have managed to smuggle out over the years. Kella takes them to Amberai, who runs the city. They meet him, a humanoid merged with a mechanical spider-like apparatus, and one eye replaced with solid amber. With Kella and Zephyr vouching for the group, he allows them to stay, and recognizes Amarea for who he is and was, greeting him as an old friend. Amberai used to worship Amarea back in the day, he says, and invites him to stay as long as he wishes. Nearly a year passes. They try their best to stay informed as to what's happening topside. Jackson swears his blade to Amarea and becomes the first of a new order of dragon knights. Zephyr shares his stories of what happened, and learned the fate of his mother, who escaped to the city, but passed away from illness. Mordecai returns topside after hearing that they called off the search for Mako, and sees his family again during Mako's remembrance. Jackson, 
Zephyr, and Mordecai are called to meet with Amberai, Amorea, and Master B one day. Amberai and his constructs, the Amberforged, have been seeking word from beyond the wall. They wish to broker peace, it seems, on the condition that Amorea, Balit, and the former Aegis Three are the ones to do so. They agree and prepare for the next adventure, down whatever path it may take them. Thank you for joining us here on this abbreviated version of Season 1 of Another Path. My name is Chase. I'm the GM of this show. I've been joined today by my co-hosts and players, Griffin, Ryan, and Zach. You can find us at Another Path Pod on Twitter and at AnotherPathPodcast.com. If you've enjoyed the story that we've told today, I invite you to dive back to the start of Season 1 for the more detailed look at where we've been, and to certainly join us for Season 2 to see where we're going. We'll be starting Season 2 on June 5th, 2019, and we hope to see you there. And until then, remember, you never know where you're going, but there will always be another path to tread.